Well, good morning, saints. It is good to gather with you this morning in worship of our of our risen Savior. My name is Kelton. I serve as one of the pastors of Stafford Baptist Church. If I haven't had the, the pleasure of meeting you yet, please hang around afterwards. I'd, I'd love a chance to greet you this morning. We now continue our, our service of worship now by, by hearing God's word proclaimed. Today we're starting the, the second month of our sermon series, Letters to the Church, now in our, our fifth book, First Thessalonians. So please, if you would, open your Bibles with me to the book of First Thessalonians. If you don't have a Bible or want to follow along in the same translation I'll be reading from, you can use our, our Pew Bibles. You can find First Thessalonians there on page 986, page 986. And in fact, if, if you don't own a Bible or if you want a Bible to, to give away to a friend or family member, please take that Bible with you. First Thessalonians, continue to imitate Christ. But before we read, though, please pray with me once more for our, our hearing and for the proclamation of God's word. Let's, let's pray. Father, we confess that the, the work that we are about to do to, to hear your word to have your word proclaimed with full conviction and to be received as it is, as really the word of God, we need your spirit. This is something that we cannot do in our own flesh by our own power. So Lord, we, we pray for your help to take your truth and plant it deep in us, to shape and fashion us in your likeness. Lord, we pray this for the glory of Christ in his name. Amen. Well, every church has, has its own unique story. The story of Stafford Baptist Church starts more than 45 years ago. In April of 1976, four people began meeting on Thursday nights right down the street from us in a rented building behind what was Aquia Hotel, now Aquia Realty, as a mission of the Fredericksburg Baptist Association. Well, that small group of four grew. They soon started meeting on Sunday mornings. And so on March 4th, 1978, 59 people covenanted in membership to become Stafford Baptist Church, our official birthday. Five months later, in, in August of that year, the church called their first pastor, Reverend H. Allen Redd. He was one of the men who had helped preach during those first years as a mission. Well, eventually, that small church started a building, and they built on to that building a few times. They hired new pastors. People came and went. Lots changed over the years. But the most important things never changed. We today still have copies of our, our early business meetings of our statement of faith, of our church covenant that we adopted 43 years ago. And it's, it's so encouraging to read through those, those old statements, our confession of faith, our, our covenant. Sure, they've been revised and updated, but this church has met here for four decades, gathered to rejoice in the, the same Savior, proclaiming the same gospel and to live with one another in the, the same way in obedience to, to God's word. I think if our first pastor, Reverend Red, were to come back, many things would feel different. 
but so much would feel exactly like it did 45 years ago. The, the fact is that, that every church has a unique story, but in, in another sense, in a more important sense, every church has the same story. If you change the dates and the names behind the story of every church, ourselves included, is the same God working in the same way to gather a people redeemed by the one blood of the Savior. Those people made more and more like Him as they grow, all with the same hope in Christ's imminent return. So we come to 1 Thessalonians this this morning. In many ways, it's a unique letter for Paul. It includes many details about the history of the church in Thessalonica. But I think if we change a few of the details, it sounds a lot like our story too. It's the story of, of God at work to build His church, doing the same thing He does in every church, in every age, in every place. As Paul wrote to this early church, he reminds us too of of God's evident work. And because God is at work building his church, he gives us continued encouragement in our godly walk. That'll be our main idea this morning, a a one-sentence summary of the main message of these five chapters, this, this one book of the Bible. Since God's work in you is evident, Continue to please God by imitating Christ in purity, love, and in hope of His return. Let me say that again. Since God's work in you is evident, continue to please God by imitating Christ in purity, love, and in hope of His return. As we go forward, we'll see that in the first three chapters of this letter, Paul will recount all the ways that that God has been and is at work in the congregation at Thessalonica. And these things should be true of of not only that church, but but every church, our church included. Then in the the final two chapters, Paul goes on to encourage that church to to continue to imitate Christ. You see, Paul had had heard report from his co-worker Timothy that the church had some specific difficulties. So, So he gives specific encouragement to purity, to love and to hope in Christ's return. Since God's work in you is evident, continue to please God by imitating Christ in purity, love, and in hope of His return. To give you a map of of where we're going this morning, we're going to have two points. First, convincing evidence of God's work. That's in chapters 1 through 3. And second, continued encouragement for a godly walk. That's in chapters 4 and 5. Convincing evidence of God's work, continued encouragement for a godly walk. As we go through each point, we'll have a number of sub-points, but but we'll get to those in time. We're going to start today by reading the whole first chapter, which is ten verses. So please read with me 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy, to the church of the Thessalonians in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace. We give thanks to God always for all of you constantly mentioning you in our prayers, remembering before our God and Father your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. For we know, brothers loved by God, that He has chosen you 
Because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. You know what kind of men we proved to be among you for your sake. And you became imitators of us and of the Lord, for you received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and in Achaia. For not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere, so that we, not, so we need not say anything. For they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you, and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God, and to wait for His Son from heaven, whom He raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. The word of the Lord. Well, you see how Paul begins their story, right? Recounting how they received the gospel as he preached it to them, turning from idols to serve the true and living God. Well, I think because this, this letter is filled with such frequent references to, to how he came to Thessalonica and, and what happened when he's there, it'll, it'll help us before we get started to, to do some background work. So Paul's time in Thessalonica is recorded for us in Acts chapter 17, verses 1 through 9. Paul, once a persecutor of the church, miraculously saved by the power of God, is now going everywhere to proclaim Jesus. Paul is particularly called to, to Macedonia, where we find the city of Thessalonica, by a vision, a man urging him to come to Macedonia. Well, in Macedonia, Paul gets to Thessalonica when he is asked to leave Philippi after being in prison there. Well, in, in Thessalonica, he does what is his custom. He, he teaches in the synagogue for three weeks, explaining to the Jews there that, that Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah. And some, some are persuaded. A church is born in Thessalonica. But Paul's time in the city is cut short. Some unbelieving Jews stir up a mob and accuse him of teaching against the decrees of Caesar, that there is another king, not Caesar, but Jesus. Well, those Jews follow him to the next city, doing the same, stirring up mobs against him. So, so Paul is forced to leave Macedonia, on to the city of Athens. Well, Paul does not abandon the church in Thessalonica. No, he soon sends his, his co-worker Timothy back to the city to hear how they're doing. He himself will revisit that city recorded for us in Acts chapter 20. Well, with, with that background in place, we're ready to start his, his story of, of how they came to be. Our first point this morning, convincing evidence of God's work in chapters 1 through 3. Convincing evidence of God's work. I'm sure as you noticed, as we read through chapter 1, and going forward into chapters 2 and 3, Paul is, is filling in the details that Acts leaves out of his proclamation of the gospel in that city and, and their response as he preached. You might wonder, are, are these chapters just historical notes for us to read through and just understand better how that church was started? Well, yes, the, the Bible is written in a specific context, to a particular people. But what we find with the story of Thessalonica is, is the story of every church. 
what we're going to see in these first chapters is eight evidences, eight evidences of God's work in the church of Thessalonica. But these eight evidences are evidences that we should find in every church of God, ourselves included. Look with me again at verse 1. Paul starts by introducing the authors himself with Silas and Timothy, all three who were there at first when they planted the church. He goes on to to give thanks in his prayer there in verses 2 and 3. In verses 4 and 5, Paul is convinced that, that these saints are loved by God and chosen. Why? Well, it's our, our first evidence of God's work. First, the gospel with conviction. The gospel with conviction. Look at the sentence that starts with verse 4. He says that an evidence of God's work in a true church is when the gospel comes not only in word, he says there in verse 5, but, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit with full conviction. The gospel he is speaking of is the good news of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection for the forgiveness of all who repent of their sins and trust in Christ. The gospel is more than words, but it is not less. It is a message. The gospel is news. And this message was proclaimed not just like another headline in the daily newspaper, just words. No, it came, he says, with power. It was proclaimed in the Holy Spirit. It came with full conviction. Paul is here describing how he proclaimed the gospel to the saints at Thessalonica. You know, brothers and sisters, uh, a An atheist Bible scholar could stand in this pulpit and read to you a summary of the gospel, and it would be true. But it wouldn't be the gospel proclamation that happened at Thessalonica through Paul. No, Paul preached the gospel with full conviction, he says. That means he preached with boldness, with complete confidence and assurance of the truth of the message he proclaimed. All things that, that that Bible scholar atheist would lack. This is an evidence of God's work. The true church is formed by gospel proclamation that is not just true, but alive with power to change the hearts of those who hear by the Holy Spirit. All true churches, Thessalonica, Stafford, start with gospel proclamation. Without this central message, truly believed and blessed by God, there is no church anywhere. But it isn't just how the gospel was proclaimed in Thessalonica. There is also convincing evidence of God's work in how the people responded to that gospel proclamation. Our second evidence this morning, imitating Jesus. Imitating Jesus. Look again at verse 6. How did they respond to the word that that Paul, Silas, and Timothy proclaimed with full conviction? Well, they received it. They received it. They received the hard message of the gospel. Remember, this is not a, a fun message. This gospel calls all people wicked sinners deserving of eternal condemnation. And he says in, in verse 6, they received it 
in much affliction with joy in the Holy Spirit. Joy in the midst of affliction. Probably a reference to the the Jews who immediately began to persecute them, dragging them before Roman authorities, making accusations against them. And in that way, receiving it with joy in the midst of affliction, they're just like Paul. They're just like Jesus, enduring persecution with joy from the Spirit. Immediately we see this church is like their new Lord and Master. They bear family resemblance after being reborn. They are imitating Jesus. Friends, there is no true church without the gospel being received and producing change. Change that looks like joy in the midst of affliction. Change that looks like following the example of their Savior. And Paul keeps going. In in verse 7, he says that this reception that they've had is an example to all the believers in their region and the surrounding region. So we come to our third evidence, word and faith going forth. Word and faith going forth. Look at verse 8. Paul and company find that they don't need to tell anyone about this church since everyone has already heard. They have a reputation of faith in God. This church has not just received the word and responded to it, but is now bringing that message to the whole world. They are already investing in spreading the good news. Another evidence that God is at work is a culture that sees the church not as a cul-de-sac. You know the signs, no outlets, the road goes nowhere from here. No, but the church is a massive roundabout, sending people and the message out in every direction. This good news is not just for us, but for the whole world. In verses 9 and 10, there at the end of chapter 1, Paul shares what report they're hearing elsewhere about what happened in Thessalonica. And our fourth convincing evidence of God's worth, work, turning from idols. Turning from idols. I'm going to read verses 9 and 10 again, just since they're so good. For they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you. How you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God. And to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead. Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. Does that sound like a description of Stafford Baptist as well? All people everywhere, in Thessalonica and in Stafford, serve idols before coming to God. That might sound strange to you. We don't bow down to golden statues in our culture. But but idols are, are anything that take the place of God. Yes, it could be a Roman god, or it could be wealth, or a sports team, or, or yes, even liberty. When a good thing becomes a god thing, it is an idol. As Martin Luther put it, whatever your heart clings to and confides in, that is really your god. No one is born a Christian. You're not in a right relationship with God because you had godly parents or because you grew up in the church. All people must turn to God from idols. You must be converted and that only through the message 
of the gospel. The Christians at Thessalonica have this great evidence of God's work among them. That they had turned to God from their idols to serve the living and true God. And friends, wherever this happens, it is a a miracle. It is the gift of repentance and faith by God's work. Even with full conviction, the messenger can only plant or water. It is God who gives the growth. The spirit, like the wind, blows where it wishes. So it is with everyone who is born of the spirit. Now in in verse 10, he says that all Christians wait. He's going to talk a lot about the second coming in in the letter. What we confessed in the Apostles' Creed earlier as his, his coming to judge the quick and the dead, the living and the dead. He says that this son, in verse 10, was was raised from the dead as our deliverer from the wrath to come. If you have turned from idols to God, your eternal destiny is with Jesus in heaven. But if you cling to idols and disregard God's grace, your eternal destiny, he says, is wrath to come. All true churches are marked by an abiding hope in Christ to come again and deliver us from the wrath to come. As he gets into the second chapter here, Paul reminds us that they came to this city in the first place because they had been forced out of Philippi. Though they left Philippi in the conflict there, that that conflict followed them. So in verses 3 and 4 of chapter 2, he describes the motive for his, his appeal. And it's our fifth evidence this morning, pleasing God, pleasing God. We haven't read these verses yet, so please read them with me. 1 Thessalonians 2, verses 3 and 4. For our appeal does not spring from error or or, or impurity or any attempt to deceive, but just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak, not to please man, but to please God, who tests our hearts. Paul was motivated in his proclamation despite the suffering in a desire to to please God. He says he had been approved by God, entrusted with a message that was not his own. So now he speaks in Philippi, in Thessalonica, everywhere, not to, to please man, but to please God. So also here in Stafford, the message that the true church hears receives and makes known is is not a message that that pleases people first and foremost the message of the gospel is is not popular it's also not a message that that we came up with it was entrusted to us from god we don't manipulate it we don't try to convince people to believe it by by altering or softening the message no rather in everything our motivation is to please god knowing that He will test our hearts, not just our words. He sees and knows our inner hearts. So it is evidence of God's work in our work to please Him. In the next verses, he adds that he didn't flatter nor work for gain or glory. Rather, they were gentle and affectionate among them. He and his 
His co-workers worked hard night and day not to be a burden while they proclaimed this gospel. They lived righteous and blameless lives. In verse 12, he describes their ministry as, as exhorting and encouraging, charging to walk worthy of God who called them into his kingdom and glory. The glory is not for Paul, for Silas, for Timothy. It's all to God, all to please God. In verse 13, we, we see another evidence of God's work in this church. Sixth, the word working. The word working. As they exhorted and encouraged and charged, well, what happened there at the church? Well, read with me chapter 2, verse 13. And we also thank God constantly for this, that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but as what it really is, the word of God, which is at work in you believers. Every church in every age rests on this, that the message of the gospel, the, the teaching of the apostles, is not the word of man containing some divine and inspiring thoughts. No, it is truly God's word. It's as they say, if you want to hear God speak, read your Bible out loud. Because it is truly God's word, Paul says at the end of the verse that, that this word is now at work in you believers. The word of God is living and active. It is breathed out by God and equips us for every good work. Christian, is God's word living and active in you today? Or does it sit lifeless? God's work is evident as his word is working. And he points out here in this letter that God's work by his word shows itself in how we suffer affliction. Our seventh evidence in, in verse 14, suffering affliction, suffering affliction. Read with me chapter 2 verse 14. He says, for you brothers became imitators of the churches of God in Christ Jesus that are in Judea. For you suffered the same things from your own countrymen as they did from the Jews. Just like the churches back home in this church in Europe was to suffering from mistreatment from their countrymen. He continues on this theme of suffering into chapter 3. He expresses his desire there in verse 17 to, to come and, and see them since he was torn away so quickly. He says that he is going to, to send Timothy from, from Athens to, to hear how they're doing. The purpose in, in verse 3 of chapter 3 is, is to exhort them, right? So they wouldn't be moved by these afflictions because they know that they were destined for them. In verse 4, he says that, that you yourselves know that we were destined for this. We told you in verse 4 that, that beforehand, this is exactly what would happen. Before it even happened, Paul knew that they would suffer because it is the birthright of Christians in every church. Suffering is not exceptional in the church's life. The story of every church includes suffering. Yes, we might need to change the details a bit. It looks different for every church, but every church will suffer. 
And this suffering is in fact a sign of God's love. First Peter calls our suffering a test. Hebrews calls it discipline. But it's also a sign of our enemy. Notice in 2.18, Satan hindered us. Or in 3.5, he was worried that the tempter had tempted you. Our suffering is because we are opposed by more than just our countrymen, but the prince of this world, Satan. Well, our suffering of affliction is evidence of God's work. Finally, he reports what he has heard from Timothy when he returns to him. And it is good news and our last convincing evidence of God's work, our eighth evidence, enduring faith and love. Enduring faith and love. Read with me Timothy's report in chapter 3, verse 6. But now that Timothy has come to us from you and has brought us the good news of your faith and love and reported that you always remember us kindly and long to see us, as we long to see you. For this reason, brothers, in all our distress and affliction, we have been comforted about you through your faith. The good news, they still have faith. They still have, have love, not only for one another, but, but for Paul and his co-workers. They long to see them. The enduring evidence of God's work is enduring faith and love. It's not just walking an aisle praying a prayer and on with life as it was before. It's a life of continued faith and love. Faith and love toward God and love toward all the saints. Faith is the grounds of our justification, our right standing with God. What we've seen so clearly in this sermon series from Galatians on is that that we are made right with God by grace through faith. If that faith doesn't endure, to be frank, it was never real. Our union with Christ ensures that he will not lose any. He will not lose any that are his. He is the author and perfecter of faith. And the fruit of that justification by faith is obedience from the heart by the Spirit. That obedience looks like love. Love for God and love for others. Faith and love, evidence of God's work in the true church. So Paul is is comforted and prays earnestly in chapter 3 to see them. Paul concludes his history with a benediction there in verses 11 through 13. A blessing that God would, would bring them together, unite Paul with his church, that he would increase their love Establish them in holiness for the coming of the Lord Jesus with his saints. So there we have it, brothers and sisters. Eight evidences of God's work in the church of the Thessalonians. That gives Paul confidence that they are loved by God, chosen by him. They're the real deal. The gospel with conviction. Imitating Jesus Word and faith going forth, turning from idols, pleasing God, the word working, suffering affliction, and enduring faith and love. I wonder if Reverend Red, our first pastor, were to write us a letter, something like First Thessalonians, 
What would it say are the evidences of God's work in our church? Would it sound like this list of eight? Especially, how has 2020 in our enduring trial of coronavirus exposed God's work in us? How has he done what we could not do on our own? Brothers and sisters, what have you seen? What do you see in our body that is convincing evidence that this is the real deal? A work of God and not of man. Well, whatever you're thinking of, if you see something, say something. Encourage someone with it. Especially if this is God's work, work that only He can do, what we cannot do on our own, I would suggest to you, brothers and sisters, to use these these eight evidences as a prayer list next week. That God would do in you, as members of, of this body, of this church, this kind of work. And pray that every part of this body, all of the members of this church, would give the same evidence. Convincing evidence of God's work. As Paul was for the church at Thessalonica, I too am convinced that God is at work. So Paul goes on in the second half of his letter to to continue to encourage them in a godly walk. As they had received how they ought to, to please God to do so more and more, so we too this morning are going to turn to our second point. Continued encouragement for a godly walk. Continued encouragement for a godly walk in chapters 4 and 5. In these last two chapters, Paul addresses a a few areas of concern, likely what what Timothy had reported to him when he got back. And what he says isn't new. It's reinforcing what they had said at first, what Timothy had exhorted them when he had visited. Read with me chapter 4, verse 1. Chapter 4, verse 1. Finally, then, brothers, we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus that as you receive from us how you ought to walk and to please God, just as you are doing, that you do so more and more. This is just what he had already taught them when he was there. This is just what they are already doing. Just just do it more and more. Church, this is why so much of Christian worship is instruction. We hear a sermon. We have Sunday school. We have Bible study. It's to remember what we have been taught and learn more to do so, to obey more and more. In this letter, there are four specific areas of instruction and and one general for five total. There are problems, though, that that aren't unique just to the church at Thessalonica. They're they're true of every church in every age, ourselves included. So we will have five encouragements this morning, five encouragements for a godly walk. First, walk in purity. In chapter 4, verses 3 through 8, walk in purity. Have you ever wondered, I just, I just wish I knew. I just wish I knew what God wanted me to do with my life. Could he just tell me? I have an answer for you. Read with me chapter 4, verse 3. For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality. God's will for your life, brother, sister, is your sanctification. 
Sanctification means to be made holy, to be set apart. In the Christian's life, it is our progressive with fits and starts, with setbacks and advances of being made more like Christ. More today than yesterday, but, but less than tomorrow. And this sanctification is accomplished by our efforts. That's why Paul writes to encourage them to do something. It is our obedience to the instructions God has given. But this obedience is not on our own. It's empowered by His grace, by His Spirit. It is God's continued work in us in which we cooperate. Justification is instantaneous. It's irreversible. It's objective. But this, this sanctification, is, it's a process. It's different for every believer. And it requires our work. And here in the first part of chapter 4... The work he is calling us to is particularly our obedience for God's design for sexual purity. He says there in verse 3 that you abstain from sexual immorality. This phrase is a catch-all for any kind of sexual act that is not moral. This would include adultery, prostitution, homosexuality, pornography, and a whole host of other sexual sins. If you're joining us today and and you're not a Christian, thank you for being with us. This is certainly an area where where Christians, where the Bible generate controversy. You have to understand that that Christians understand that, that we were made by God, and so was sex. And he intended sex for for pleasure, but pleasure in its place. The image I have is is sex is like fire. When it's in the fireplace, it gives the house warmth, beauty, and and light. But what happens when you take that fire out of the fireplace? Well, it destroys everything. God knows best how we are to use the gifts that He has made. Paul exhorts us in verses 4 and 5 to control our bodies in holiness and honor. Not in the passion of lusts like those who do not know God. Our world's message is that that our passions, our desires are who we truly are. Our desires are our identity. So biblical ethics are considered constraints on who we are. But the, the truth is the Bible teaches us that to be truly free is to not be ruled by our passions. We were made to be ruled by God, who is far better than even our deepest desires in our sins. So, Stafford Baptist, God's grace is greater than even sexual sins that so easily entangle. We should be sober here. In verse 6, he warns that when we transgress in sexual sin, we transgress our brother or sister. Sexual sin, even in private, is, is always against others as well. It treats people like objects for our desires, not as, as people made in God's image, worthy of honor and dignity. Church, some, some of you have been 
deeply hurt by sexual sin, either against you or, or someone you love. There are few sins that are, are so personal, that are such great violations of our personhood. Well, our comfort in verse 6 is that God is an avenger. The Lord is an avenger in all these things, Paul writes. This should first sober all who are flirting with sexual sin as if it's nothing. Even for Christians, God's loving discipline is painful. Flee, he says. But for those who have been hurt by sexual sin, God will right every wrong. Even if justice is not perfect today, one day it will be. That sin will either be paid for at the cross of Christ or in the wrath to come. The Lord is an avenger in all these things. Praise God for his perfect justice. And he says in verse 8, brothers and sisters, listen closely. If we disregard this teaching about sexual sin, we disregard God. Again, this is not the word of man, but, but God's word. No one can ignore, no one can disregard without suffering the consequences. So act, act accordingly. Verses 9 through 12, Paul addresses his second area of instruction, second walk in love. In verses 9 through 12, walk in love. Walk in purity, now walk in love. Read with me chapter 4, verses 9 and 10. Now concerning brotherly love, you have no need for anyone to write to you. For you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another. For that is indeed what you are doing to all the brothers throughout Macedonia. But we urge you, brothers, to do this more and more. Well, just because they're already loving one another doesn't stop Paul from calling for more. He says more and more. Love should be the distinguishing mark of the church. They will know that you are my disciples, Jesus taught, because of your good theology. No, demons have good theology. Go read 1 Corinthians 13. If I have not love, I am nothing. I echo Paul here, church. You are doing this and doing well. I am always encouraged to hear report of and, and receive myself your love. So church, just as you are doing, do so more and more. One suggestion to grow in your love, pray. I think that your heart can't stay cold to people you pray for. So take a member directory and pray for a page every day, or maybe just a column on a page. I can guarantee that consistent and sincere prayer for your brothers and sisters in Christ will only inflame your affections for them. The goal of our love, he says in verses 11 and 12, is, is to walk properly before outsiders. God has, has tied the success of his mission outside the church with our love inside the church. Our love is a witness to the world. So, walk in love. 
Walk in love. In the last part of chapter 4, Paul addresses an area where the church seemed to be uninformed. It seems that some members of the church had, had died since Paul left. And they think that since Jesus hadn't returned yet, those people are, are lost. So Paul offers them hope. Third, walk in hope. In chapter 4, verses 13 to 18. Walk in hope. Read with me chapter 4, verses 13 and 14. But we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others who do not have hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. Paul wants to instruct them about what happens to those who who die because they are grieving without hope. The truth is that since Jesus died and rose again, so too will those who are with him. Again, notice how we've seen in in all of these letters from Paul how our union with Christ shows up. Paul's point here is to give them hope. Yes, they are to grieve. Death is real and terrible and an enemy in the end to be destroyed. But as they grieve, they are to grieve with hope since death is not final. In the next verses, Paul gives more instruction about what the end will be like for believers. When Jesus returns, the dead will rise first. Then those who are alive at his return will be brought to be with him, with them and the Lord. And the the point in verse 18 is, is to encourage one another with these words, to give hope to one another. The, The Christian walk to please God is a walk of hope. It is unshakable confidence in what God has promised and to live accordingly. That in the valley of the shadow of death, God is with us. We'll get more on the second coming next week in the second letter to the Thessalonians. But but for now, note, good theology is meant to give us hope that pleases God. Christians get depressed, yes, and and no sorrow, but there is no place for despair in the Christian life. The church should not be marked by despair. We always have reason for hope. Our Savior walked out of the grave, and so will all who trust in Him. So I, I wonder, are you tempted to despair, Christian? How could right theology, really believed, give you hope? The truth is that the Christians should be the most hopeful people in the world. Literally, if everything is as bad as it could be in your life, Jesus is coming back. All pain and sorrow has an expiration date. You have hope. So walk in hope, friend. Walk in purity, walk in love, walk in hope. Fourth, walk with Jesus. In chapter 5, verses 1 through 11, walk with Jesus. He continues talking about Jesus' second coming, but now about the timing, how it will be sudden. Read with me chapter 5, verses 1 and 2. Now concerning the times and the seasons, brothers, you have no need to have anything written to you. For you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. 
He uses the metaphor here of a thief in the night. In other words, a surprise when no one is expecting him. In verse 3, he compares it to the, the labor of pregnancy, agonizing and sudden. So in verses 4 through 8, because it will be sudden, he calls them to live in the light, to live awake, to be always ready for his return, since it could happen at any moment. In other words, walk with Jesus, be awake in the light, always. That day will not bring agonizing pain for us in God's wrath, but, but salvation. Read, read with me perhaps my favorite verses of the book, chapter 5, 9 and 10. For God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us so that whether we are awake or asleep, we might live with him. Brothers and sisters, we look forward to salvation. Not, he says, through our good works, but through our Lord Jesus Christ. And that, he says, because he died for us. So that whether dead or alive, we might live with him, have relationship with him. Brothers and sisters, what he reminds us of here in these verses is the good news at the center of our life together as the body of Jesus Christ. Jesus died for us, he says. He died in our place. The wrath that you are destined to, that you deserve because of your sin, well, Jesus suffered and exhausted that wrath on the cross. In three hours, Christ suffered more than any sinner ever will in hell. So that by faith in Him and repentance from sin, you can have salvation in the last day and life with Him now and forevermore. If you don't yet believe that, God invites you to trust Jesus now and by the gift of His grace, you will have life with Him forever. If you do believe that, brother, sister, well, he says there at the end, encourage one another and build one another up just as you are doing. This is the good news we are built on. Either way, whether asleep or awake, dead or alive, the point is to live with Jesus. You don't, in fact, you can't just wait until he comes back or when you die to start living with Jesus. Walk with Jesus today in the light, awake. Walk in purity, walk in love, walk in hope, walk with Jesus, and finally, walk in complete holiness. In chapter 5, verses 12 through 28, through the end. Walk in complete holiness. Paul's specific instructions are over, and now he has a laundry list of exhortations to close. Again, want to know what God wants you to do with your life? Well, read with me there in the middle, verses 16, 17, and 18. Rejoice always. Pray without ceasing. Give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Notice the comprehensive terms he uses, always, without ceasing, all circumstances. He is giving them broad directions for complete holiness, how we are to live always and everywhere. How much more general can you get than verse 22? 
abstain from every form of evil. In all the matters he can address in this letter, flee evil. God's desire for us, church, is to be completely set apart for holy use, to be singularly devoted to him in love. And that's summarized for us in a benediction at the end. Read with me verses 23 and 24. Paul blesses the church by saying, Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely. And may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. As we look forward to the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, we know that he will sanctify us completely. And that's based not on our faith, but his faithfulness to us. He will do it. Remember, sanctification is our work. That's why Paul is exhorting us to purity and love and hope and complete holiness. But in the end, we know that this is work that God must do. He will complete holiness perfectly when he returns. So, brothers and sisters, this morning, if we have confidence that there's convincing evidence of God's work in us, if we see the, the gospel with conviction, conviction, if we're seeing imitating Jesus, the, the word and faith going forth, turning from idols, pleasing God, the, the word working, suffering, affliction, and enduring faith and love, well, this is the confidence of verse 24, then we know that God will complete this work at the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. So the call for us today is walk worthy of our calling in purity, love, and hope in complete holiness until he comes. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the evidence that we have as your church that you are at work among us. And this is a work of your hand, not in the power that we have, but by your Holy Spirit. Not by our deserving, but your grace toward us in Christ. Lord, we give you praise for the evidence we see of your work in us. And pray that that would give us confidence to press on in purity, in love, in hope, for complete holiness. That our eye would be set on that day when our holiness would be made perfect in the presence of our Lord and Savior forever to live with him. It's in his name that we pray. Amen.